Hello there, welcome to this episode in this podcast series where I'm discussing chapters from my book published by Rutledge entitled Critical Perspectives on Diversity in Organisations. In this episode I'd like to talk about chapter 10 which deals with place, space and geography. And so the chapter, we had an earlier episode that was about history and I suppose you could say that asks the, the when question, when things were happening in our in our uh, sort of recent history or ancient history or when were certain events taking place that were relevant to diversity and equality um and so the corresponding question for this chapter on diversity and geography is where 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 um where we are affects who we are um if you like and so i am not a geographer just as i'm not a historian but i do think there's uh, a lot of scholarship that can be brought in here uh, to enrich how we how we critically reflect on diversity in organisation. And although I think the phrase or label is often overused, just like again with history, you had maybe a historical turn in the social sciences. Some people would say there's been a, a spatial turn to pay more attention to a sense of place and space when we're researching things in the social sciences. So I start the chapter by looking at some of the edited volumes and handbooks that have have come out in the last 15, 20 years um, and that have sort of not been, there's not been an enormous amount of them, but the ones that have emerged have started to link space to organisation and management theory um, because place and space affect our identities and they can be linked with many other topics like architecture, transport, cities, um, our bodies and how our bodies move through space and how that feels, um, and various other forms of technology and power implicated in uh, the built environment. So spaces affect us. Um, we, we, in some sense, construct spaces and places or shape them, um, but of course they have a, a strong effect on us uh, as well. So we start to get into concepts like place and community um, and the idea that space can be hierarchical, it can be divided, it can be imposed on us. So I continue the chapter starting to relate it more to diversity and I think, uh, you know, it, it, it rolls off the tongue in the sense that you can start to talk about diverse people using diverse places for diverse reasons and so I talk a bit about the symbolic nature of space and place talk about geographical scale which I think is truly truly mind-blowing here because you could be talking about uh, everything from a cupboard in an office um, or, or, or a sort of a room a room in a building uh, right through to a sort of national or international economic region uh, and some of the diversity and inequality bound up in that one figure it seems to me worth mentioning because he appears in a lot of research on space and place is the Marxist philosopher Henri Lefebvre um, and in particular his he has a, a sort of triangle or a triad of concepts around space where you can think about space in different ways as being conceived, perceived and lived and so the idea that we relate to space in different ways is not so surprising, but it's helpful to have these concepts that say, well, 
How do we use space in our everyday life? What does it mean to us? And who plans and designs the spaces um, and represents them using maps and other forms of representation and, and conception? And so places can be a way of building community, securing commitment. And we might say that spaces are always social. We're moving through them and interacting with with different people, experiencing encounters and emotions. And they're aesthetic as well. There may be sort of a, a certain look and feel to a space that's meaningful. Of course, there's many other topics I talk about. There's territorial feelings and so struggles for um, appropriating territories and, and geographies for different purposes we can talk about entrepreneurs and innovators and how they maybe uh, try to invest in particular spaces and places in growing and starting up businesses and partnering up with investors people travel and migrate from one place to another so you have Lots of diverse stakeholder situations here. There's sometimes uh, other concepts that come in like liminality. So if we talk about a liminal space, it's often to do with crossing a boundary or occupying a particular zone of transition between one place and another or between one state and another. And spaces are uh, places where people struggle to use them in ways that feel inclusive and legitimate. So in the remainder of the chapter, I, I flesh this, these links between diversity and space out in a few specific sections. And I suppose I just picked a few headings here and because they all interrelate, but perhaps slightly different messages. So the first one is that minorities use spaces to organise and they do that in different ways. And there's a lot of interesting research here. So we only need to think about gender and sexual orientation. And we know that people might use different nightclubs or, or toilets or uh, might go to different places to network or, or, or socialize um, where they can expect to encounter uh, other uh, people who identify with the same um, same diverse identities that they do. And because minorities may feel excluded in more uh, in spaces where majorities tend to run the status quo and have more influence. So if you're a, a lesbian or gay employee and you're in a, a very heterosexual culture uh, or a very, uh, yeah, a very sort of normative culture, uh, traditional conservative culture, you might feel that there's uh, spaces of silence or uncomfortable spaces um, where you don't feel that you're able to organize and express yourself as a minority and that leads us perhaps unsurprisingly to the the phrase which has been used quite a lot in recent years which is creating safe spaces for minorities and although some people can uh, that can be met with a, a sort of a reactionary political attitude or a bit of controversy um but my, these safe spaces can be argued to be very important uh, for for diverse minorities because they allow them to discuss their identities and interests independently of the majorities or the elites or other groups that um, might be oppressing them or discriminating against them. So that they they are quite they can carry benefits and limitations having safe spaces, but nevertheless. 
um, in some institutional and organisational contexts, minorities do need to um, create separate spaces to carve out um, and work through uh, their campaigns and initiatives if, if there's going to be meaningful change. It may be that minorities feel that majorities have have colonised, either sort of literally or more figuratively, but have colonised workspace. And there's a lot of interesting research on minorities that show how minorities come together and they, they use and reappropriate workspaces in different ways. So one example is uh, women working on uh, night shift together um, can, can start to use spaces and relate to one another in their workspace differently. Women may come together and, and have been shown in research to come together in university settings in sort of women-only spaces where they can um, discuss the influence of, of masculinity and other influences on the, on the culture uh, that they're experiencing. So minorities may come together and, and seek to change routines, layouts, networking possibilities in their workspaces. Migrant workers may uh, find that they uh, need to sort of occupy spaces together uh, where they're, they're more excluded or marginalised uh, when they try and assimilate into the majority culture. And migrant labour is, we, we, if we follow migrant workers, as some research has done, we find that the rhythms of their life as they move through different spaces and organisations can be very dynamic, but also very precarious. When they arrive um, uh, in a country, they may be trying to survive, seeking out opportunities um, and trying to adjust. And then there's other... Uh, cases that explore minority groups in the same space uh, maybe with a shared sense of deprivation if they're in a particular urban area or, 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 or a deprived area there might also be indigenous workers on ancestral territories um, that remain marginalized in a sort of neo-colonial environment so there's all sorts of research on minority organizing and often of course there is a struggle a struggle to to exist uh, in a way and express oneself and to work uh, and coordinate um, in a meaningful and, and, and stable and fulfilling way. Solidarity initiatives reflect uses of space often as well and people in grassroots organisations in Europe have been studied that, that come together to resist harsh government austerity measures and they will sort of use local space to meet uh, and figure out how to maybe resist or challenge areas of of government policy so sometimes these organizations are a bit more grassroots they're a bit more radical and they provide physical and sometimes digital spaces um, for minorities to negotiate uh, equality and inclusion and goals and these spaces can fail as well, and some researchers has acknowledged that, you know, that people may come together and have kind of contentious discussions. They may have idealistic emotional views of what they hope the change to their environment will be, uh, but the energy and the momentum to establish a new, uh, a new political and organisational space can be quite fragile. So there'll be some relative success and failure there. 
And then in the middle of the chapter, I start another section here that links space and diversity, and I talk about inclusion. So it's a bit more, a bit more of a positive uh, uh, body of uh, this chapter, positive section. And I talk about how some places can come to feel more inclusive and get what we might call a sense of place about them. Now, there was a study I mentioned here about the Ebola virus in 2014, um, and that was a, a you know a long time before. Uh, the, the current COVID pandemic or the recent COVID pandemic. Um, and here we saw how emergency departments <clears throat> were were turned into organisational places of social inclusion by carefully protecting resources and, 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 and directing them to the most vulnerable. So, so spaces and places can be designed to foster inclusion where they are carefully... Um, mobilized to address human needs and human associations and people can do that uh, in everyday in their everyday lives as well they may create a bit of personal space to uh, be mindful or, or, or practice maybe religious or spiritual um, uh, spiritual rituals in certain spaces and places or maybe for leisure uh, or other purposes I also talk about historical commemorative spaces, which are often trying to be inclusive across the past, present and future, um, trying to symbolically remember diverse figures and struggles in the history of a, a country or region. And that does involve organisations, you know, not least organisations like museums, um, which often have to deal with extremely difficult uh, memories and events associated with trauma and genocide and they have to think about how to make their organizations how to design them as inclusive places where victims and their testimonies can be faithfully included in our post-conflict memories and experiences we've now got multiple generations included um more so than ever in human history, you might you might uh, argue, uh, up to four generations of workers of different age groups sharing space in organisations. And as these people move around and encounter other diverse people, and if they're in physical space, they will encounter each other physically. Um, some places have no have no inclusion for many. Um, and there are some interesting discussions of what some theorists would call non-places. They're so generic and bland and westernized that they don't, we think of airports or hotel rooms. Um, they provide some important familiarity and similarity, um, but they can also be quite um, soulless or uh, quite uh, sterile. And then we have service environments, Again, people may go to bars or, um, or, or as a customer, they may uh, find themselves amongst others like themselves or maybe diverse others. Um, and these spaces create certain expectations and accommodations. One a particularly salient example uh, where there has been some research on limited degrees of inclusion has been mothers breastfeeding in the workplaces and how that's often they've often had to deal with stigmatization uh, and there's a there's an inclusion politics there around whether organizations have spaces for 
mothers to lactate um, and address childcare and other forms of parenting in their work uh, work identity. And the same is true of disabled employees as well. There's a an open question around to what degree organisations create inclusive spaces for those with disabilities. Obviously, accessibility is a huge issue. Funding cuts and marketization can limit the attention organisations pay to, to the spatial inclusion of disabled employees. But there is now quite a body of evidence that shows that same for ageing workforces as well, that relatively small cost-effective modifications to work environments and, and policies can create enabling geography at work rather than disabling. And there's also interesting studies which go back to the quite trendy uh, French idea of, which I think goes back to Baudelaire actually, the flaneur somebody who strolls about the city or loiters in the city with no particular um, aim in mind. And, you know, that is a form of sort of urban inclusion, if you like. And one researcher, Nash, she's walked around London and sort of made observations about how women and men gather around workplaces in buildings in London. And in some places, women may feel experiences of otherness and invisibility. And in some buildings, sort of histories of gender segregation and racial segregation may be built into their their history. And again, it's how do we change the conversation about that history embedded in the geography of the of the spaces and places to to change and question um, the kind of spaces we might want to occupy today or in or in the future. That said, there'll often be spaces where um, masculinity uh, and femininity create a sense of belonging and inclusion, even as they exclude others at the same time. So there's a lot to be said for interpreting the level of inclusion of a space or place associated with an organisation. I even talk a little bit, and I don't go too far with this idea for space reasons, but I think talking about geography we can even start to talk about biodiversity and we can talk about plants and the natural environment and non-human animals and this does come up occasionally in organizational research um, whether it's um, mining operations or construction sites Um, sometimes organizations do have to pay attention to the season the natural species that that make their habitats in the organizational environment um, and have you know particular animal behaviors and of course we all as humans as well like to occupy certain green spaces in cities and community gardens and parks can also represent efforts for people to organize in inclusive ways and there's been some research on communal gardens and how these bring together diverse collectives, and they may work on um, social and community well-being goals and minority outreach, for example, food, housing, and poverty reduction. So I then move into a final section, which is take it zooms out a little bit to think about the geography 
more broadly and it's a bit more critical in terms of you know wherever we're wherever we go in the world we will we will experience the diversity and inequality of the regions and the organizations in those regions and this is why we have feminist geography marxist geography uh, post-colonial geographies to try and look at um how to represent geographies of inequality and diversity around the world and i suppose the hope is to try and better understand the, the relations of power that go with globalization and transnational organization so it might be skills shortages in particular sectors that suffer from a lack of gender and class diversity and there's just not enough inclusive engagement with people living in other parts of the region or in rural or remote uh, parts of the geography. And there's been some work done in South Korea from a feminist geography perspective that says, although women work as managers in many organisations, they still have a lack of access to business trips, training, and certain positions that are amenable to promotions. And so again, women sort of come together to consider anti-discrimination and gender issues Non-Korean firms might enter into the geography and produce new kinds of spaces and places. And we know that um, in various cultures, certain patriarchal practices persist around segregating women or women's modesty. Um, and then in more progressive spaces, there may be trans-inclusive spaces and more gender-fluid spaces. And so there are visions of how to have geographies that are more equal and inclusive at a broader level. But the problems and the challenges are considerable. And nowhere is this more true than scholars talking about race in North America. Um, and I, have a, I, I won't read the whole quote, but there's a quote in the chapter that talks about a scholar called Delaney, who in a single quote, in a single paragraph mentions the geographies of race in the gated community, the boardroom, the faculty lounge, the dish room, the locker room, the classroom, the prison, the convenience store, the cafeteria, public spaces, and of course people's homes. And that the, the Africanist presence may be treated societally as something recessive in those in many of those spaces that are based around majority whiteness and other ethnic constructions and so there is colonial history around the world and i touched on that in other episodes on history um, and so when people encounter or travel to different countries those former colonial relations their legacies linger on in the global working environments and create certain emotional and symbolic meanings behind interactions we have now many aging populations and workforces in many countries we have uh, people with many disabilities uh, seeking to make advances and be included in employment um, but whether or not the spaces broadly are designed in it in a way that accommodates and includes disabled and aging bodies is something that researchers are increasingly looking at 
because a lot of workplaces are d disabling and they are exclusionary. Um, and the way that organizations think about productivity, comfort, safety, independence often is based implicitly or explicitly around the assumption of a, a sort of an ageless, uh, able-bodied normal ideal whatever that might whatever that might be and of course there'll be difficult questions that continue to emerge as we use spaces to work in different ways whether it's the gig economy or various forms of co-working what are the sort of buildings going to look like and again there's great research on how different diverse workers do what's called spatial work in buildings and they might use the building differently to what's intended by architects or managers as the, as the uses for the space evolve. So there's a lot of different context here. Uh, there's even research, which I won't go into for time and space reasons, but um, on people working as massage therapists, people who perform the role of Santa Claus, um, and again, these often consider you, you know these often involve unique or very distinctive considerations around how we use spaces to treat people with dignity intimately but respecting proximity and propriety with diverse customers. <clears throat> Some of the older elites uh professionals such as hospital doctors and other uh, professionals and leaders may experience that uh, a loss of some of their status as spaces get redesigned they may have to mingle with uh, other people in in more collaborative ways than than what they've been used to in the in the past and that that uh, might lead to a reconfiguration of working relationships again i touch on some research although it's difficult to to do it justice in one chapter but again interesting avenues of inquiry we can also think about urban versus rural environments and how organizations relate to those often <clears throat> there's a trend towards urbanization so there'll be a very high status strategic center in london paris new york tokyo uh, and other other world cities um where whereas less valuable uh, or, or, or units in the organization that are deemed less valuable or less strategically relevant may be moved towards the edge uh, or the periphery of a region or, or a town. And inequality can, of course, get built into those landscapes. We can also talk not just about people being rooted in a particular location, but we can also talk about mobility and even relatively high-status work like that of um, management consultants, uh, this work can still involve feelings of ambiguity, feeling stuck in a loop where you're travelling the world but you don't really feel like you're going anywhere or seeing anything. You're maybe spending a lot of time in hotels uh, and spending a lot of time dealing with jet lag, and people bounce between places and, and spaces that, that maybe aren't that meaningful or fulfilling to them. And so this is where critical questioning and action comes in to ask whether these spaces are really working well for anyone. And then we can go right down to the most uh, the most disadvantaged and deprived and, and question and critically interrogate 
how well our organisations and societies provide homes for the homeless, spaces for the chronic or terminally ill and the elderly, um, and how we organise to provide those spaces and places because they often get overlooked in management and business school research, and yet they have profound consequences for our lives. Um, how we understand problems, where we direct resources, where we carry out our routines and rituals and the connections between them is, is as I'm sure many of us realise, is profoundly connected to space, place and geography. And so to, I conclude this chapter by reflecting a bit more on this. And don't get me wrong, I have some sympathy um, and some fellow feeling with all people researching workplaces and organisations. It's not always easy or feasible or appropriate to do an all-out geographical study of something. Um, Often that's just not what the research topic or question is about, um, and that's maybe not what the research project is designed to do we might be interviewing people in all sorts of different places trying to explore a common issue or we might be sending out a survey online for people to complete and then there's a limited scope for actually looking at geography so i think it's a bit a bit of a challenge because it seems like a bit of an all or nothing thing there's definitely a lot of research i review in this chapter where people have done an enormous amount of reflection and engage an exploration of geography and space but there's also a great deal of research that barely mentions geography or where the participants of the research were located what the context of those places and spaces was like and the effect that environment may have played um, in shaping the phenomena or relationships under investigation So I've just sought in this chapter to make it a bit more explicit and to offer some modest avenues for maybe future research on diversity where where possible and where appropriate um, to integrate diversity a little bit more. And as I've covered, there were a few main sections. One was about how minorities organise in space. Another one was how spaces can provide varying degrees of inclusion And a final one was how spaces mark out geographies of inequality. And so papers continue to emerge. A lot of them try to review key concepts so that we keep using them. These could be things like boundaries, distances, movements, distributions, differentiations and intersections. You've got a sort of intersectionality compatibility there as well, which again relates back to an earlier chapter topic and episode of this book and there's a growing emphasis on movements and dynamic processes of how um, lots of different people and maybe even animals and objects come together to organize resources in surprising ways you can look at large-scale issues you can look at small-scale issues everything from climate change down to local poverty This spatial topology of thinking about the size and scale of the organisational work and relationships that we're looking at. It's hard to do justice to it all indeed. I mean, I haven't even really had space to talk about technology so much here. But of course, um, increasingly spaces are global. They're virtual and digitally supported and, and the work is highly distributed. 
and there are venerable research traditions on those topics. But the questions remain about how we create positive spaces and relationships when perhaps we're working in it in an unexpected way uh, across a long distance. Again, we've seen a huge amount of reflection on this during the pandemic. And then um, there's the worlds of art and cultural production, where spaces have a particular creative and entrepreneurial and innovative symbolic and political significance. And we might, we, there, are, there is research con- continuing to emerge that looks at museums, art galleries, state buildings, fairs and other venues where these sorts of human activities are going on in very distinctive spaces. There's also a discussion I think is just uh, something I, I weave in here as interest for the future about what's been called biophilic space. So office and work design where humans can get more benefit from contact with nature throughout the work day. That might sound quite surprising if we've worked in a, a factory or an office with a little plant on our windowsill. But there is a, a, a questioning of where the workspace can be more about the outdoors than it, than, because it has been so much about the indoors for so long in many environments. And there's also um, a, an ethical dimension to this. If we look at global spaces, whether it's shanty towns or war zones um, or detention centres of some kind or Brazilian favelas um, and trying to, again, not just lose that sense of geography because we abstract to the global north and the global south. As I said, I mentioned earlier, a lot of studies continue to use the work of Henri Lefebvre as a major theorist. There are many other theorists. There's also many aspects to Henri Lefebvre's work so Nash's work uh, on a, as a flaneur strolling around the city of London and looking at organisations there used rhythm analysis, which was a sort of methodology that was developed through the work of Henri Lefebvre. And book volumes continue to emerge about Henri Lefebvre, but also methodologies and theories that we can use to incorporate geography more into the social sciences. And I finished but with a quote from a writer called Patani, uh, who, who, who says, wherever people write about space, it, it often becomes more personal and more heartfelt. Um, and they describe this as being a sort of welcome change and something that might encourage people to engage more with academic work. And they talk about how many journal articles today are jargon-littered full of dead references and actually it's only by writing about spaces and places that we can bring our research to life more and it might stand a chance of boring readers less and attracting more readers to research so that's a bit of a call to arms to finish on there Um, but that's the end of chapter 10 on space place and geography in relation to diversity in organizations Thank you for listening to this episode. Um, I still have a few more chapters of the book left to go, remarkably. Um, And the next chapter takes us into the final part of the book, part four, which starts to look at implications for the future a little more more specifically. Um, And the first chapter of this part 
uh, I'll talk about in the next episode, which is chapter 11. Uh, and this looks at the uh, a topic which perhaps for many needs no introduction, but a critical perspective on the business case for diversity. And maybe thinking about ways to move beyond the business case uh, when we look at the logic of diversity management and the reasons why organisations are emphasising and focusing on diversity. So thanks for listening uh, and hope to uh, speak to you again next time.